iTunes presents Meet the Filmmaker at the Apple Store. I had the craziest dream last night about a girl who was turned into a swan. But her prince falls for the wrong girl, and she kills herself. He promised to feature me more this season. Well, he should. You've been there long enough. And you're the most dedicated dancer in the company. Our new swan queen, the exquisite Nina Sayers. I'm Lily. You're gonna be amazing. I watch the way she moves. Sensual. She's not faking it. Seduces! Attack it! Attack it! Come on! Where'd you get these? It's nothing. You sweet girl. Feel my touch. Respond to it. Someone's hot for teacher. I don't want to talk about that. We really need to relax. It's the role, isn't it? It's all this pressure. I knew it'd be too much. I knew it. Ow. What's she doing here? He made me your alternate. The only person standing in your way is you. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome filmmaker Darren Aronofsky and this evening's guest moderator, Peter Travers of Rolling Stone. Thank you. All right, so I, I have to ask you immediately. You can't have that I water. I'm spraying at, uh, apple yeah. my kid. Do we have apple water? <laughs> no. <laughs> Is it coming? I have to ask you right away, for starters, after The Wrestler, after Pie, after Requiem for a Dream in the Fountain, what's with this ballet? <laughs> what, what, how did that happen? Um, I, when my sister was a dancer and uh, growing up, and um, she, got, she was very talented, and so it was sort of in the background for my whole youth, but I never knew anything about it, and then... Um, when I graduated from film school, I made a list of possible worlds to explore, and one of them was wrestling, and one of them was ballet. And um, sure, it's either yeah. one or the other. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, then we just started working on it, and um, it just came more and more alive the more we, we we looked into it. You know, I think audiences are interested in worlds that don't get exposed that much. You know, because there's a whole world there. You know, everyone when we were doing the wrestle was like, "Why are you making a film about wrestling? No one cares about wrestling." But I think once we went behind the curtain, everyone was like, oh, you know, those big muscular guys actually have feelings. And uh, so the ballet world was a similar challenge. Well, when you decide to do something like this and you have a sister that's, I mean, you should have known more about it if your sister was doing it. Didn't yeah. you take her aside and say, what's motivating you? 
Uh, no, I, I don't think I even had a conversation with her during the research part of it because she's been at, she left it when she was in high school and definitely turned her back on it. Um, but I did show her the film when it was getting close to be finished to get yeah. some feedback from a dancer. But um, You can't just drop that. So she said what? She, oh, <laughs> yeah. I, she was very supportive, but she she actually didn't look. She's so far from being a dancer at this point that mm-hmm. she was looking at it as. I mean, she's a producer now for CBS News, so she's deep in the media. So she was looking at more as a filmmaker than as a dancer. Um, but uh, so she wasn't she wasn't that instrumental. But growing up with it, with that in the background, you know, and not knowing anything about it, it just. I guess I always wanted to know what it was all about, and so. You know, I think when you look at ballet, it's kind of like when you first hear reggae music, everything sounds exactly the same. But yeah. the more you listen to it, the more you realize there's a lot of depth and a lot of complexity to it. And the same thing with ballet. It's like, um, you know, the more you look at it, the more interesting it becomes. Well, you guys have just seen the trailer, right? Nobody has seen this whole movie, but I think you can get an idea from the trailer that this, uh, if you have visions of sugar plums dancing in your head, this is not what we see in this. Yeah. So I'm going to ask you like a strange little thing that I used to get in school. It's like an essay question. And just say, I, Darren Aronofsky, made Black Swan because? <laughs> I made it because um, I think... Um I think black. Uh, I mean, I think people think of ballet, and they do think of Sugar Plum Fairies and the Nutcracker. But actually, if you look at Swan Lake and you look at Romeo and Juliet and Sleeping Beauty, three of the other ones, they're actually pretty dark and um, gothic, and they're based on these sort of ancient fairy tales. Um, you know, and the more we looked at Swan Lake and actually peeled away the beauty, you know, I remember talking to Julie Kent, a big uh, principal dancer at ABT, and I said, I said, okay, let me get this straight. So. She's, she's under the spell, and during the day, she's uh, a swan, and at night, she's what? And because I thought it, it, she was a girl, and she said, no, well, she's half girl, half swan. And I realized, oh, it's a, it's a werewolf movie, except it's a swan film. And uh, I was going to be able to take Natalie Portman, this beautiful, delicate creature, and turn her into something. And so... You know, turn, turning a ballet into a movie, you can suddenly start to do stuff like that. And, and very much the movie is the ballet. You know, Clint Mansell, my composer, took the score, uh, you know, took Tchaikovsky and sort of, um, you know, put it through the twisted filter of his brain and his electronic equipment. And then we re-recorded it with a, with a real live orchestra in London and turned it into something that is the score of Swan Lake, but it's something very, very different. Like you could hear, like that music that you just heard, a lot of those ideas are from Tchaikovsky, but through the, um, through the brilliance of Clint Mansell. Why not sample Tchaikovsky? It's perfectly fine, isn't it? He well, can't do... <clears throat> it's he, been, it's, that music's been floating around yeah. in, for... It's been in the public domain now for 100 years, and it's been underneath every Volkswagen and Bugs Bunny cartoon. <laughs> and so I think people associate a lot of those themes with a lot of different things. So the idea was to take the music and make it darker and meaner and more... And, and ultimately, I mean, the ballet music's written for ballet, so it's, it's very hysterical. And it goes up and down and up and down, and movies definitely have a more consistent, moody atmosphere that you have to maintain over a longer amount of time. And so um, that, was, that was part of the challenge, is how to take some of the themes and ideas and turn it into a longer piece. And then there's this, like, 
<clears throat> the whole film is actually inspired by Tchaikovsky. I mean, when we went to, there's a whole club sequence where they go dancing and it's pretty freaky sequence. And what we did is we went to sort of the, the best um, electronic musicians in the world from the Chemical Brothers to a bunch of other guys and, gave, and gals and gave them, um, gave them different pieces of Swan Lake and said, okay, now turn this into a contemporary dance electronic track. And so that, that's how we got that music done. And well, you'll see when you see the whole movie how that works. But I want to go back to the phrase of torturing a Natalie Portman. How exactly did you do that, and over how long? Um, well, I, I mean, I'm. Oh come on! I, I tortured. To I tortured her character. Her, yeah, mm -hmm. her character was tortured in the film. But Natalie's pretty, um, is you know, very, very together, very disciplined, uh, very hardworking. And uh, she probably tortured herself a lot. I mean, she started training about a year before the movie started. I mean, it's a tall order to ask a dance, ask someone to become a ballet dancer, a prima ballerina. You know, when I asked Mickey Rourke to become a wrestler, probably most of us in three, four months could do a decent job. Um, but, um, you know, learning how to do, be a great ballet dancer is 20 years minimum. So it was a tall order. Um, but Natalie trained for a year, um, five hours a day, and then eight hours a day when we got closer, and, um, and did a pretty damn convincing job. I think ballet dancers, of course, will see through the illusion and people in the ballet world, but, I think mo but they'll be so impressed with how hard she's trying that they'll give her a break. And uh, you know, for most people that don't stare at ballet all the time, it's pretty convincing illusion. I, I see a whole tape now or a DVD coming out about Learn to Be a Prima Ballerina by Natalie Portman in a year's easy lessons to do it. She started when she was a child, though, right? She, she, had, she, she trained from 4 to 13, so I think that helped a little bit with her turnout and her hyperextension and stuff. So she could do a lot that other people... I mean, they start training, ballet dancers start training when they're four or five, and their bodies literally change. I mean, if you, if you ever see a ballet dancer walking, you can tell a mile away they've got a huge turnout on their legs. Their bones shift in their bodies. Um, so it's a pretty hard thing to mimic. Yeah, and you let us see what happens to dancers, you know, what happens to their legs, their feet, their heads, everything that goes on with them. So just for everybody who hasn't had a chance to see the movie yet, but will be there on December 3rd, right? Everybody December will 3rd. Be. Please, remember Please that. Come. Yeah. Just outline um, what's going on in this movie. Just who Natalie's playing and, and who she's meeting Nat up with. Natalie plays uh, Nina, a young dancer who is given a chance to, pl to, uh, to play the Queen Swan in a new production of Swan Lake. Uh, that's being put on by the mind of uh, Vincent, Vincent Cassell plays a character who's kind of the artistic director of the ballet. And for anyone, Swan Lake has um, is one dancer dances the black swan and the white swan. And the black swan is sexy and passionate and, um, you know, uh, more of a manipulator. And the white swan is timid and virginal. And Natalie has a very easy time with the white swan, but has a very hard time with the black swan. And, and then the challenge of the dual roles turns into kind of a psychological freakout. That's a good description. And, and who is Mila Kunis playing? Mila Kunis kind of embodies the black swan. She, she's just very sexy and very loose and comes into the company as a new dancer. And she starts to 
work her way into Natalie's brain. And Natalie's character... Has Nate, anyone seen the film? No, I guess not. Anyone? Oh, good. All these I tickets. I have, but it's not helping. One, two, three, All ten. that. I'm just counting the money. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> they had to promise when they came in. That was just part of the deal. Oh, really? They have to see it on opening day. Opening so day, that December will, 3rd. That will all happen. Union Square. What, what were people... When you came to try to get this done and to get, get it financed, and you said... I'm going to make this movie, and it's going to really be about uh, Swan Lake in some way, but I'm going to make a thriller that's psychosexual and freaky, and I'm going to use Natalie Portman, and I'm hoping that she can train and become a perfect ballet dancer by the time we start shooting. Uh, when did they start the intervention? Uh, they never got <laughs> the intervention. <laughs> they, I mean, once again, I thought it would be... Uh, once again, it was really hard to make. I mean, when we made The Wrestler, you know... It was everyone was like, "What the fuck are you doing, Mickey Rourke? Wrestling? Mm -hmm. You're out of your mind." Um, and one company in the world gave us the the money to do the film. And then after it did pretty well and people liked it, I thought, "Okay, I've got a movie star, Natalie Portman. I got an international movie star, Vincent Cassell. I got Mila Kunis and Barbara Hershey and Winona Ryder. You know, this is gonna be, and it's kind of a sexy psychological horror film set in the ballet world. That's kind of cool." And everyone said no, and it was a real nightmare once again to get the money. It was probably harder to make than The Wrestler to find the money to do it, but, um, you know. So they don't, Darren, they don't just say, look, you did pretty good with The Wrestler. Nobody, you don't get points. You get no respect. You get no respect. Kind of a business. You only get respect if you do something that's commercial, that people want to see. That's the only time you get respect. Otherwise, you're the only person in the room trying to make the movie, and it's just a challenge. Well, I heard some rumors about your next movie, and can you talk about it? I'd rather not. Oh, please. Well, maybe, maybe you can convince. Well, I mean, it's him just later. that. I mean, I've, been, I've made five films now where I'm the only person in the room who wants to make the movie. Mm -hmm. And there's something exciting and a new type of challenge about actually everyone wanting to make a new movie. Big. So that's kind of fun, and we're just going to try and do something new. But I haven't started working on anything. I've just been, mm -hmm. I've been promoting this, and the film comes out on December 3rd at mm -hmm. Union Square. So anyway, what were the technical issues that were the most challenging in making this movie? Oh, there were many. I mean, first of all, we were putting on an actual professional-looking ballet, so that was a technical challenge to actually make a stage come alive like a ballet, and then figuring out how to photograph it. And you know, ballet and just like wrestling, wrestling you probably have always seen with the you know a wide shot and the two shots on the side <laughs> like the wwe does it but i wanted to bring the camera in the ring like many boxing movies had we did the same thing with the ballet as we took the camera out of the wings and got it on stage to try and capture the energy of it and it's great after a lot of these screenings you get like you know some some doofus saying i never thought i'd love ballet man that was great <laughs> you know and that's kind of great because we wanted to capture the energy and the effort and the pain and the sweat and tears of, um, of, of how hard it is. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that, that kind of was um, exciting and fun to do. Did you have certain films that were running in your own head when you started to do this? Was, were there movies that influenced your take on yeah, doing I mean, this? Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> you know, there was, um, you know, a lot of early Polanski, Repulsion and The Tenant were big influences and um, David Cronenberg's The Fly was a big influence, and um, 
even the Dardennes, who really inspired the wrestler, mm-hmm. who are these Belgian filmmakers who did a film called The Sun and The Child. They're great filmmakers. Their immediacy helped. And then, of course, a lot of documentary, like Fred, Frederick Weissman did a couple of documentaries on ballet that were, I don't know if, I mean, they definitely gave us a real reality check, but, you know. No sense of there will be no performance of the Red Shoes tonight when you were doing this. There was well, I didn't. Re- I mean, I had heard of the Red yeah. Shoes, but I didn't um, see it until you know the Hollywood Farm Press and the Scorsese restoration started to mm-hmm. happen. And then I was like, I better watch this movie. But we were really down the road, and there are a lot of similarities between the two films. I think, but I think that's because they're both set in the ballet world, and uh, not much has changed. So. But this is not like any movie set in the ballet that I've ever seen, since I'm the only other one beside you that's seen it. It's not like that. I think you can see a lot of themes that you're working in there about mirrors and reflections with the music and what's going on with I'm your alternate, what's happening. What, what did you start that with that in mind? This was what you were going to do? Well, we always knew the mirror was going to be a big part, big character in the film and a big uh, visual look in the film because um, for several reasons. One, um, you know, when you uh, any ballet studio is filled with mirrors um, because and dancers are always looking at their reflections to see their line and to see you know where they are standing in in, in three dimensional space, um, and uh, and also because the film has this whole theme of being replaced and the doppelganger and you know reflections. So, but it was a big challenge because, you know, the mirror effect is like the oldest, cheesiest horror effect in the world. You know, the, you're standing in front, of a, in, in front of the mirror, you know, in front of the medicine cabinet. You reach inside to get some toothpaste. You shut it and then, you know, and everyone's like scared. So we, we didn't really want to do that. We wanted to try and do something different. So we really pushed it and we worked a lot with digital effects and put the camera in places that are impossible for a camera to be. And also worked with a lot of one-way mirrors and did a lot of a lot of tricks to try and we knew we were doing a lot of cheap scares because I think people enjoy them and that'll be part of the reason people come to see the movie is just you know to jump. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, but we just wanted to try and surprise people as best we could. Cheap scares, I like that. That's it's a, absolutely cheap that's scare. I mean, what else do you call, you call it? it. No, you know, I, when, I don't the, know. when it's something pops out of Jet a box. You know, Jack in the Box is a cheap scare, but it mm-hmm. still works. So, you know. But what we're watching in that character is somebody coming apart who can't come apart who has to get up on that stage and and in rehearsal and be you know mickey rorkin's character and the wrestler could deal with the drugs could you know go off after and still deal with what wrestling is but boy you can't dance swan lake (laughs) unless you've got it all together so at what point in the movie did natalie portman come to you and say dude what the hell are you doing to me (laughs) when was that she was pretty solid throughout. Um, you know, there was maybe one day when she, I changed the choreography on her that day, which was a really, you know, kind of fucked up thing to do, but it, the, the choreography wasn't working for the shot. Um, so we had to kind of change it. And we made it simpler, but I think it was also psychologically, it's hard when you've practiced something for a long time to bring another thing. And by then, we were deep in it and she was pretty exhausted. So that was tough. But. Um, uh, she was solid the whole film. She was she was a total trooper, and it was unbelievably difficult. She had an MRI during the shooting because she hit her head during one scene, and then she actually got a twisted rib that was sounds not that bad, but it was sounds stuck. bad to it me. It was stuck under another rib, and then she actually gets physical therapy in the film, 
And that's a real physical therapist. That's not an actress. That was the, her therapist actually digging into her, and it's pretty gruesome, um, but and intense. And you know, so it it was. Uh, I think it was very very tough on her. But um, you know, she's she's a tough girl. You hear that, people out there? You work for Darren Aronofsky, and you get a real physical therapist to work absolutely. with you. Yeah. To, yeah. This is what comes Ex- with taking absolutely. Yeah, 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 That's yeah. really nice. I don't think that anybody at the Screen Actors Guild has any kind of clause like that in their contract. So good for you. When you had the assemblage and looked at the movie totally after it was done, and I don't know how long that might have been when you were looking at a first cut... <coughs> What is your reaction when you look at what you've wrought? What <laughs> when you're just looking at it all put together? That, that's a bad. I mean, that actually is suicidal moment. Mm-hmm. But that I think most I've talked to many filmmakers, and that is probably the worst worst day of filmmaking is when you uh, when you see the assemblage, mm-hmm. because you think you've done such better work, and then it's it's crap, <laughs> and it's it's crap for a lot of reasons because you just haven't started to shape it, but and, and you realize how far you have to go because you normally see the assemblage like a couple of weeks after you finish shooting because the editing team has been assembling it and they, and I have a great editor it has nothing to do with my editor but it's still really depressing until you really get in there and and get to know the footage and own it and then and then there's so much finishing work I mean there's so much sound work that has to happen and music work and. When it's bare and naked and 40 minutes too long, it's really, really, really upsetting. Mm-hmm. So all you filmmakers out there is, you know, keep on going through the assemblage and just try to ignore it. But I always get drunk the night of the assemblage because I just know Smart. it's going to be, it's just going to, it's a mi- otherwise I'm miserable for two, three days. <laughs> I could just picture you sitting there saying, what, why did I hire these people? What? It's no, very terrible. I wanted so, to do baseball. Yeah. No, it the shouldn't hardest have was that. when I did Requiem for a Dream because... That was cut in such a different way, and it was the first time I worked with that editor, who was a brilliant editor, but he had no idea. He was just confused why there was no master shots, you know, and so he was trying to make up for that. He just thought I was out of my mind, <laughs> and it just didn't work, and I was like, no, 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 no. You don't have to start the f- scene with a master shot. You could start on a close-up. That's the idea. Anyway, so that was a disastrous day. <laughs> you know... With all those disastrous days, in the end, it adds up. Anyway, I want the audience to be able to ask some questions, so raise your hand, and somebody will come with an instrument. Right here to your right? Yeah. Hi, Mr. Aronofsky. I'm a big fan. Um, I wanted to ask, um, I noticed that body modification seems to be a big theme in your films, and I wanted to ask what it was about that um, transformation that your characters have gone through that you know interests you and why... You think that's a running theme in your work? It's a good question. Um, I don't know. I haven't figured that out yet. Um, I don't know. I think because uh, we're kind of on the eve of that revolution, it feels like. You know, it feels like people are going to be starting to put technology. I mean, they already are. I got an MRI after the on the last day of the wrestler. Mickey Rourke made me uh, jump off the top rope before I left the set, and I landed on my neck. And uh, so I had to go get an MRI. I mean, my neck's fine now, but it, it hurt for like two, three months, which is Mickey Rourke pain in the neck. Oh, no, no, I didn't say it. <laughs> and then um, I got an MRI, and they give you a whole list of shit you got to check off to make sure you don't have inside your body, like weird heart valves and weird, because you can't have any metals and stuff. But there were so many things like fake, um, you know, shutter for your eyes. I mean, there were so many weird things that I was like, wow, it's really arrived. People have uh, you know all this technology inside them 
I just I don't know why I, I, it feels like that's gonna happen. People are starting to do it, and you know, tattooing and and piercing and then steroids and all that stuff. It you know, it's pretty cutting edge. Is it scary to you? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I mean, it's I mean, I think all these films are a little bit I'm a, a bit of a luddite. Um, you know, the the fountain was like, you know, please come to terms with your death. It's okay to die, you know, and then uh, yet people are fighting so fucking hard to stay young and stay alive and ignoring, you know, uh, you know, the impact that, that that's going to have on us and the planet and all that stuff and that maybe, you know, growing old is part of life, you know, which might be, you know, the, the, in other cultures it's really respected and honored and as a whole part of our philosophy we kind of shut off and it feels like all these body modifications is all about ignoring anything that's really connected yeah. but yet I'll be the first one to you know stick my iPod in my shoulder as soon as I can <laughs> as long as it's over 8 gigs <laughs> second question yeah Victor how are you hi Victor uh, question regarding first your rehearsal process if it varies from film to film and how you go about that and secondly, how you cast the smaller roles, the under fives in your films. Um, well, I, rehearsing is always different. Sometimes I've done things like theater where I've really worked it out a long time. You know, Requiem for a Dream, we did tremendous work. You know, to, and then, you know, you work with someone like Mickey Rourke who doesn't learn the line till after the scene is over, you know. <laughs> so uh, it's all very different and varied. You just sort of go with it. And, and, they, and you just, you really got to react to each actor and what they need because um, every actor has their own process and if they don't have a process then you know you do some rehearsing and you just don't want to tighten them up and then uh, actress casting is really important because um, you know uh, they can really ruin a scene and uh, so you know I, I cast everyone you know anyone who has a line I'll cast I mean and then even I have a problem usually with the background and stuff usually because you know you get it's just, it's hard to get the right people for the right scene, and you have to make sure you have the right cast. I mean, I don't cast that. I, I, I trust a few casting directors to bring the right people in and then work with what's there. Um, but you just read everyone and then and see what it is, see who can do it and who surprises you, and, and then hopefully they're good. But they often, it's hard. It's really hard. Or you try to get really, really good actors that you have relationships with to do you a favor, like Mark Margolis. His, his line got cut in the film <laughs> but he did do like a under five for me just because I asked him and it was like three blocks from his house so I convinced him to come over what he's been in every film and here he's just he's literally an extra he's just in the crowd but he did have some lines that got cut unfortunately next question to you right over here mm -hmm. hi um, love your films also uh, glad to hear you mention the Darden brothers my understanding is they work um kind of with a lot of improv, do you do that? And also with just a technical question, with that scene where the camera's following her right in her face, that must have been hard to pull off. What, uh, what kind of technical equipment did you use to make that happen? Uh, a, you know, a cameraman with a shoulder. <laughs> that was about as technical as we got. The whole film's handheld. Uh, just very, very talented artist. Um, you know, really working out the frame and getting some beautiful compositions after we blocked it. Uh, the first part of the question was, oh, the Dardens. Uh, improv. I, I love improv, you know, and I'm wide open to it. I, I mean, I, I believe that even if they 
even within a line, there's improv. You know, if they're working with the lines, there's a million ways to say it. And so I'm open to that. And then if something else happens or comes out, you have to be open to it. And I just try to be as open and as present as I can be. What was the improv line that surprised you the most that's in the movie that you heard it and went, whoa, okay. I'm really not precious with the words mm-hmm. in, in film, so I, you know, I, there's probably so many of them that of where the lines changed. Um, I mean, uh, Vincent Cassell is constantly uh, changing the humor, and the way he does lines is um, very, very free. And so he's constantly changing the meaning of scenes by how he performs them. So I, I probably he was probably the freest of all the actors. Yeah, because I, when you're dealing with some actors, they don't really like to work improv. A few of them say, no, let's well, do it. Fine. We, it's yeah. fine. You know, I mean, I don't think you force it upon anyone. It just, you know, if, it, if they're good at it, let them do it, you know. Next question. Mm-hmm. Hey, uh, my name is Ariel. Um, I want to say, when people speak about you, about Darren Aronofsky, they never mention Pi anymore. I think that's one of the best films, I mean, I would say top three you've ever made uh, for me, and I didn't watch it too long ago. Um, that's why you're here, is to just right, keep ex- talking about exactly. it. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I want to say, um, how is the experience of looking back at Pi? I mean, it's a very down and dirty film. The, the cinematography, the aesthetics of it are very, very different than any of the other films you made uh, and you keep making. Um, is it, do you, do you feel there's a financial side to that as well? Or, I mean... I don't know. I, I actually, they, I did one of these Q&As and they showed a scene from it and I found it pretty humiliating, actually. It was like... Run look, that scene! Yeah. <laughs> it was actually, it was like looking at, um, you know, my poetry when I was 15, sort of. You know, it's, you outgrow certain things. And then we did a Blu-ray version of Requiem and I didn't really get that involved. I was busy working on this, but my team remixed it and remastered it and stuff and they went back to the negative and Maddie went back and you know made sure it looked right and then at the end they asked me to take a look at it which I did and I didn't I couldn't recognize the man or the or the young boy or that had made that like I was like that is not me that is not I don't know the person that made that film I could not make that film today and I think that's really important is to let it go and um you know, it's nice when people compliment those things because it represents something of who I was back then. But I don't know if any of that exists. It's just sort of gone and you let it go and you just try to keep making new work. I, I heard that um, the, the, when you cast it, the um, Requiem for a Dream, the mother, um, when she got the script, she turned it down. Then she watched by and then she wanted to work with you. I mean, how do you? Yeah, that's, that helps. <laughs> they think it's me, but it's not really me. You but you're, n- you're not disavowing those movies. You're just no. saying it's a different you that made them. It's like an exhale, yeah. but lots of them. That yeah. happened a long time ago, and it's what represents what I, you know, what I was thinking about at the time. But you know, they're very distant. When, when a film happens, you've got to just sort of, you know, it's like having a kid, and the kid's finally gone out of the house. And then you sort of have a relationship, but it's sort of gone. So this is a new you now. So this yeah. new you wouldn't, when Mickey Rourke said, get on the ropes and jump, you'd probably say no now after your MRI experience. No, I would have snuck out. Yeah. I mean, he had his big Israeli bodyguard there to yeah. stop me from leaving. So I was like, I couldn't go anyway. Next question here in Standing Room Center. 
Hi. Um, could you talk a little bit about the costumes and how you ended up working with Rodart? Um, yeah. Um, well, Amy Westcott was the costume designer. She was the same costume designer from, uh, from, from The Wrestler. And uh, we decided, and Natalie introduced us to Rodarte, and uh, I, was, I really liked their work. And um, so we started to talk to them, and they, were really, they really got the movie. And then it was, it was interesting because, you know, they're used to making single pieces because they're, fa they're couture fashion makers. And I was like, oh, no, 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 we need four of those because we need one for the stunt double, we need one for Mila, we need one for Natalie, and we need one after we tear it in half and there's blood leaking all over it. So that was a big challenge for them to suddenly, oh, you know, gosh, we have to make duplicates and stuff like that. So it was, I think it was a learning curve for, 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 for them, but they, they have such incredible aesthetics that they, you know, working with Amy and myself, they just took it to another level of what, and the costumes are just great, so. We have room for two more questions. Thank you. Hello. Um, love your films. Um, Thank you. When I saw The Fountain, I remember coming out of the cinema in London and people actually asking me right outside the film, did you get it? What was it about? Now, I loved it. I mean, I loved every moment of it, but I knew that if I looked away in certain pieces of it, that I would miss the whole picture of it. My question is, is where do you decide or draw the line if you're going to provide steps or bridges for people to do you know what i mean some films work in multiple stories the simple story the complex story but yours are quite if you miss this you you lost the whole thing basically well you got to pay attention otherwise <laughs> uh, otherwise uh you know i i don't know i mean um that that was a very interesting one because you know the people who really get it really get it and the people who hate it really hate it um, no, was no, that, no, I don't know. Was he that didn't a, a review, was actually. Was that an unprovoked personal attack? <laughs> no, not yeah, a personal attack. Yeah. It's an attack on your taste no, for okay. that one film. Yeah, uh, <laughs> no, you were positive. You, you gave me a nice review, actually, I think, on that one. Um, sure, I did. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 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 i got to look it up. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, and that, more than any film, that's the film that people really... Um, connect that I get the deepest connections and the same thing with Hugh Jackman he's like the fucking those fountain fans are freaky man they follow me around <laughs> and stuff so uh, it's got this kind of underground following that's you know seems to be growing as time goes by so it's cool you know we always thought you know we were trying to make a film that was a mystery and that would hopefully stand you know be something people would look back on over the years and so hopefully that'll happen you know um, but you know it's very hard. Tone is a really hard thing about where, you know, w w you know, what's the mainstream feeling for it. You know, none of my films have had to kind of figure that out. They've all been for specific audiences and they've been able to survive that way. You know, so like, you know, the fork and the staple gun in The Wrestler, you know, meant a lot of people in the Academy turned it off at that point, you know, or walked out of the theater. And that's, there's consequences, but the film needed that because he has to have a heart attack and there's a similar line in the black swan you know how far can you go but my take is there are no limitations just go for it every time and that is often a bit too extreme for some people and you know in the case of the fountain it was like let's make this an enigma that is figure outable but and it's actually not that complicated but is kind of fun to work on but it definitely means certain people who are spoon-fed you know, stuff a lot and expect that when they go to the cinema aren't going to go for it. So 
It's a consequence. Are you afraid of failure? No, nah, no. Nah. I mean, of course I'm afraid of it, but, you know, every single film I've done so far, everyone said no to. Mm-hmm. Everyone said no to. And uh, so I think there's a little fuck you attitude just to those, just like I'm going to fucking do it, you know, yeah. and there's like a little punk attitude to it. So I, and I know, you know, I, I, it, it's kind of like if I was at a blackjack table, every single time I've let it, let it ride, I double down, you know, like Pie to Requiem was a double down. Requiem to the Fountain was a double down. And, you know, some people would say, uh, you know, they took all my chips. Doing Mickey Rourke with the wrestling was, you know, and then going to a ballet movie was the same thing. But it's like, you know, if you fail, you might as well fail miserably. So, Which is why I think you're doing uh, Big Mama's House 3 next. Exactly. Which is, you've heard that here first. <laughs> Without Martin Short. With, with, nah. Our last question is over here to the right. Hi. Um, my question is actually two part. Uh, first, um, I noticed that the, I, and I think this is, you know, it's fairly clear to a lot of your viewers, is that um, a lot of your films have themes of the profound darkness and, uh, and tragedy. And um, ironically, I find not most of the characters seem to be sad, so to speak, but there's something that seems to be that enchants you about uh, pathos of human condition or, or, or psychological suffering. And um, I'm curious as to what that is. And uh, my second question is that, uh, you know, hearing from you firsthand about how many times you've heard no and how hard it is to sort of keep going with the integrity of art, how do you find the capacity, number one, and two, how do you ensure you're constantly enabled to keep doing what you do? He's a smart kid. That's a good question. (laughs) Um, The darkness part of the question. Uh, You know... um, you know, tra- tragedy is a great, great form that's kind of been destroyed by, you know, Hollywood filmmaking. It doesn't really happen anymore. It used to be on equal footing with all the other types, you know, back in the Greek days. Um, and I think, I think it's another way at looking at the human condition. Um, equal, you know, from an uplifting tale to a tale that, you know, shows you you know, when things don't work out so well. I mean, Hubert Selby Jr., who wrote Last Exit and Requiem for a Dream, um, I think his whole gig was about searching the darkness for the tiniest diamond of humanity and then by identifying it, actually shedding light on what makes us people. So I think it actually can have the same cathartic effect. It's just another way to look at it. Why I'm attracted to it um, I don't know. I mean, I guess I'm a, I, I, from a very young age, I felt like, um, you know, people were really doing really bad stuff uh, to, the, to each other and to the planet. And um, I mean, all my charity work is ecolo- ecology, and I was trained as a research biologist for field research and did a lot of science research. And I've s- kind of seen the pressure of people against the environment. Um, since I was a teenager, and um, I think by exploring, instead of just doing uplifting human tales, I think actually by exploring, you know, the bad shit that we do, yet within that actually finding the goodness and hope, which I do believe people have. I'm definitely on that side. I'm a humanist, and I completely believe that we have, I'm Captain Kirk all the way. We have the human ability to save ourselves. Um, you know, that, that's interesting to focus on. And, and, and by showing it through that lens of darkness, uh, you, you, 
you know, you put it out there, the truth about what people do. So I hope that kind well, of... Well, I think that with, in this movie, I would love to end by just asking you when you look at this movie, because you've already explained to us that when you look at the other movies, you've, you've moved on. But not this one yet. This isn't out yet. But when, is there... Ten thir- more days. Yeah, that's it. 30 at s- Union Square. <laughs> that's it. And a lot of other places. Is there 30 seconds, a minute, a scene, a moment in Black Swan that you look at on a completely personal level? I know that's all personal, but a particular moment that you'd say, yeah, this is, in a way, this is me. Uh, those are always hard ones. I mean... Um, well, we're not here to make it easy yeah, for you. Yeah. I mean, there's... Uh, I can watch, there's a shot at the very end in the trailer, it's there where she's falling in the darkness and the harps are playing. That always gets me excited every time it happens, partly because it means the movie's over and most of the people are still there. But also, um, I just like the, the, lev- the kind of peace that she's found. So I think there's something inspirational about that moment for me, about a state that she's arrived at um, through her work. Well, Darren, thank you for letting us thank you very find much, you everybody. while you're finding thank you. you.